the runaway jury can do things which are unbelievable. Juries are not allowed to know about out-of-court settlements made by others involved in the case. Patients don't view our quality of care as a peer review or standard of care. They don't even know those words. It's how did you talk to me? The doctors were brilliant in the way they handled this. The rage starts to burn in me like a flame from hell. You're the largest emergency (laughs) department in the country, and you don't have it? Decreasing the size does not change the outcome. You're the Philadelphia guy here. They should have offered a guy a soft pretzel. Yeah, Philly cheesesteak. This person's toast, no matter what you do. It is the drug of death. You're going down! Hey! You're going down! Ladies and gents, October issue, Risk Management Monthly, with me, Greg Henry. Mel Herbert. Here we go. A bunch of interesting things to talk about this month. we got some letters. we got some cases. We've got some commentary from a little thing that Greg Henry is. And we're going to do something from, where is this from, Greg? ASAP News. ASAP News. So should we get started? we got interviews for you this month. Your friend, Greg, tell me about her. Yes, this is Jillian Schmitz, who is an emergency physician who is shortly to be practicing at the Washington Medical Center and Georgetown University in Washington, D.C., So her claim to fame is she's been sued a number of times in her tender years and has been basically working with you in terms of doing what? Jillian has only been sued once, by the way, but she's one of those courageous physicians who's willing to talk about it. And she has now been very active with both the EMRA and now with the Young Physicians section. And she and I have done some video discs, which are available through Young Physicians section, on what to do if sued. And she's going to talk about the experience, the mistakes she made, and what a young physician should do when the fateful registered mail arrives at your house. What about us old physicians? Well, <laughs> you know, us? yeah, when you're an old physician, there's other registered mail. I mean, probably taking back your mortgage and things like that. That's an incredibly important topic because even just in the last week, I got an email from an incredibly distraught physician who'd been sued and was just saying it was destroying his marriage. The expert witness on the other side was somebody that's very prominent nationally, that somebody's always respected, and he just felt like he'd been screwed by this person. I mean, all around, he just feels like this is the worst experience of his life. You know, we should probably mention this for just a second. I have appeared in court against some major names in emergency medicine who you can't believe what they're actually saying. That's why, if you're an ASAP member, you have to be willing to take action through the American College against an expert Yeah, and AAEM also has a route for doing the same thing. Yes, and you need some mechanism for going after what I call egregious testimony. Anyway, that interview is coming up. You want to play that interview right now, or you want to do some cases? You know what, Rick? That's a really good idea. Now that we're rolling on this idea, let's get Jillian on the phone and say hello to her. Yeah, she was very nice to us. She's actually on vacation in Hawaii without her kids, and so... This is a very special treat that she's willing to talk to us between my ties exactly. uh, over in Maui there at the high Who says she's actually. between my ties when she's talking to you? <laughs> All right, so let's pick it up with this interview with Jillian. It's our pleasure this month to have a young physician with us, Jillian Schmitz, 
when I first saw her, I had to wonder, are you actually done with medical school? A lovely young woman who was a resident at the University of North Carolina, so tip of the hat to Judith Tintinelli for turning out such a fine product, and who is now on her way to being an attending at Georgetown and the Washington Hospital Medical Center in Washington, D.C. I have worked with Jillian on some other projects, and she was very active with EMRA and is now active in the Young Physicians section of ASAP. Jillian, is that a fair introduction of you and what you're doing at this point in time? It is, and Greg and Rick and Mel, thank you very much for having me. This is a huge honor. Well, listen, the reason we're putting you on Risk Management Monthly is when you and I worked together on another project, it was very clear that you are not only bright and articulate, but have been moved by the lawsuit process. I consider you a brave individual who's willing to talk about the experience. And what we'd like to do today is have you help us and help give advice to other physicians who are being involved in the lawsuit process. And the first question I'd like to ask is, the day the piece of paper arrived at your house, and Henry's Law is nothing good comes registered mail, what were the feelings you were experiencing when the lawsuit first started? I would say absolute panic. I think I went through various stages that is similar to the five stages of coping with a lethal diagnosis or horrible news where at first I felt denial that this was some mistake. This couldn't possibly be me, that this was an error. And then as I started digging up notes and going through the process and learning more about it, the next thing was just absolute panic and fear. The first worry that I had is, what does this mean? Am I a horrible doctor? Am I a bad person? And then became guilt of, did I do something or did I make some mistake that that caused someone harm? The lawsuit occurred, the patient interaction occurred when I was a second-year resident, but I didn't really hear anything about it until just after I finished residency. So as I'm just starting my career, it really swept me away and took away all my confidence and really put the fear of God in me that I didn't know what I was doing and that I was going to hurt someone and that this meant that I was a bad person and a bad physician, and it absolutely just terrified me. You know, you've gone through so many good ideas and concepts here early on. Let me break it down just a little bit more. The first thing that you had was, of course, the denial phase and the panic phase when you got to say, there's got to be some mistake here. I mean, I'm a great doc. You can't be talking about me. If you had it to do again, what would you say to people who are listening to this? What should they do the day the piece of paper arrives to try and calm themselves down and to get and garner support around them? What would you tell them to do? Pour yourself a very strong drink. (laughs) I'm kidding. (laughs) Take a deep breath and really read the letter and get an understanding of what it means. I think the first thing I would tell people is don't take it personally. That was something, when this happened to me, I thought I was the only one that I knew of that had ever been sued. And I felt very isolated and I felt very alone. And I didn't realize how common it is. I didn't know that once every five years on average an emergency medicine physician gets sued and that this is something that happens to everyone. It's not if it's going to happen, it's a matter of when. The second thing I would say is not to take it personally. This doesn't mean that you're a bad doctor. It doesn't mean even that you made a mistake. 
people sue for a number of reasons, and they sue anyone and everyone that might have been involved, even if you were very peripherally involved. And it's a long process, something that I have learned that it takes several years to investigate, to resolve, and sometimes it ends up being nothing. But certainly when you first open that letter, you feel like your whole life has been impacted. So really to take a deep breath, take it all in, and then start investigating what resources are available to you and understand where you go from here. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned the fact that it happened in your second year of residency, and you don't hear about it, of course, until you're out of the residency. I think that's one thing I would share with all of our listeners is the fact that the time lag here, it moves on almost the same timeline as the dinosaurs dying, that when you're a resident, you never know what you're involved in because it takes so long. You may have had some problem, and you won't hear about it until you're two or three years out. It's always good to remember that even though you're out of the residency and gone, you have an absolute obligation to still participate in the defense. In fact, lack of participation in the defense can actually negate your insurance policy. And so I think that it's important that people need to, and as a resident, of course, you're always full of bravado, and you never think that you do anything wrong or that it can't get me because I'm so good. And when that first paper comes, I think most people have to reassess the fact that, yes, it can happen to me. And I think that's an important fact to point out, as I think a lot of residents especially feel they are immune to that process, and certainly you're not. People may be named initially and then drop later on, which is something I learned later as well, but residents are certainly not immune from the process. Well, I think it's interesting that you use a phrase, which I'd like Rick Bacotta to comment on, when you said you were isolated and alone, and I'm sure there's some depression that goes with this. Rick, have you seen this in any of the doctors that you've had working for you? Actually, we have a suit going on right now with one of our physicians, and they feel compelled to talk about this with somebody else and to validate themselves. And yet when you talk to the lawyers, they'll say, please don't discuss this stuff with other people because it just makes the case all that more complex because you'll be asked who you discussed it with, and they may be deposed as well. So it's a tough problem in the case we just had. The physician very much wanted to discuss it, and he was connected to the group's lawyer, who I think made him feel a lot better. Well, I think that's an important point. Jillian brought up the feeling, and I think that emergency doctors, like all doctors, are basically science and number people, and when you're sued, it is an emotional event, and to deny that, to pretend that emotion is not a part of this is a serious problem. I had, in my 30-some years of being involved with a group, three people committed suicide in that group. All three had had medical legal problems or were in the midst of suit at that time. I think we undervalue emotional support during these things. Julia, let me ask you another question. As the suit progressed, what kind of support did you expect and what kind of support did you get from number one, your attorney, and number two, the hospital and the residency itself? I think part of the problem was that I was already out of residency, so I wasn't physically located where my hospital or lawyer or risk management office was. So at first, that was the biggest scare to me, is do I need to go out and hire a lawyer? Where do I start? How does this work? And I got the same 
feedback, Rick, that you mentioned that I really can't discuss the details of the case with anyone. So at first I didn't know who I could talk to, if anyone. My husband is also a physician, and so although we didn't discuss the very defined details of the case, I could at least count on him for some emotional support, some of my friends in residency, my program director, other people who had subsequently that I found out had also been involved in lawsuits. It made me feel a lot better to know that I wasn't the only one who had been in the situation. And then I started doing some research and found that there are a number of resources through ASAP and various organizations that really made me feel less alone throughout the whole process. Well, getting sued is a lot like dying and going to hell. At least you're there with all your friends. And you have lots of company, and misery loves company. I would reiterate what Rick said, though, about discussing the details of the case. It's important that you share your emotions and your feelings. To get into the details, and I know I watch this every time someone is sued, and Rick can comment on this, they are looking for intellectual absolution. They feel if they explain the case to enough people, the world will rise to their defense. And quite frankly, that doesn't happen, does it, Rick? No, Greg, and your phrase is very apropos, intellectual absolution. You want your colleagues to say, you didn't do anything wrong. I would have done the same thing if I were there. And they want to say nice things to you, but the fact of the matter is is that you may just make this a big mess. The more people you talk about the details of this case, you want to feel better. But the way to do it is not to justify your behavior to your colleagues. And the other thing that I learned is that you can't talk to the patient. I think part of me felt, gosh, if I could just call them and explain to them and say, I'm sorry. And that was the first thing everyone told me, too, is, no, no, you don't want to go there. I actually had a physician who did that, and he was charged with intimidation of a patient. That's a criminal offense because he started, of course, yelling on the phone, well, that isn't what happened, and you don't understand and then a person got off the phone, immediately called their attorney, who immediately went to the judge and got a bench warrant for his arrest. You don't, once there's a lawsuit going on, you never carry out what is referred to in law as an ex parte communication. You do not communicate without counsel present because this idea of potential threat and the menacing nature of physicians and that sort of thing to patients will be brought up at the time of trial, and it is not a reasonable thing to do. Let me give you one other thing that I want you to talk about, and that is your relationship with the attorney. How did you build that? How did they contact you? And did they explain the process to you that you were going to go through? Not as much as I would have liked. My risk management office called me, and then asked me to give a statement, which was going to be recorded on the telephone. And the lawyer was involved with that process and asked me a bunch of questions. And because the case had happened two years before that, I was struggling to remember the details. And thankfully, I did document my medical decision-making. But even having done that, it's very difficult to piece together exactly what I was thinking at the time and the decisions that we made at the time and the subsequent follow-up care. We knew she had gotten follow-up with a specialist, but we couldn't remember who had referred her and how it all worked. So that was part of that. The lawyer subsequently contacted me if they had follow-up questions, but then pretty much from there on, my communication was strictly through the risk management department. 
Okay. And as far as you're concerned, would it have been helpful to you at that moment in time to have had someone who could have gone through the process with you, could have explained what your potential liabilities are, what your potential financial losses could be, all that sort of thing? Oh, absolutely. I'm scared that I didn't know if I had to hire additional lawyer, if I was worried someone was going to come after our house. We're just finishing residency and starting our career, and that was absolutely terrifying to me was the lack of knowledge. You spend so many years training to be a good physician, and unfortunately the lawsuit process is not something that we commonly teach during residency, so that was all very foreign to me, and I would have really have liked that extra help and where we go from here. I think that a couple of the points that you've made really need to be reiterated, and that is you need to have a structure somewhere. Fortunately, you had a husband who was support, but the entity itself, the group, should have people you can speak to about feelings. And I'll tell you what I do, which I've done for years with our own group. I will have the defendant physician and their spouse or significant other come in and sit down and have a discussion for a while about what they're going to go through. Because I think their spouse needs to understand as well, they're going to have periods of despondency, random crying, not as attentive, less spontaneous until this thing is resolved. And I don't know, did you go through any of those things during this process? Oh my gosh, yes. God, it ate away at me, literally at my soul. I didn't sleep very well. A consequence, I was very irritable, very snappy, very angry at times when it was sort of not appropriate to be that way. I think I needed someone to be angry at, and I consequently probably was more irritable and snappy at my husband, my coworkers, whoever was around me, that I wanted this just to go away, and it didn't. It just kept lingering and lingering, and then it affected, I think, because my self-confidence was really at a low point at that time. It affected my judgment. I started ordering more tests. I started getting more consults, things that I probably didn't need. I felt like I needed that extra crutch because I was so worried about the fact of, can I trust my own judgment anymore? Am I a bad physician? Am I doing the right thing? Well, this is a good spot for Dr. Bucata to jump in because this increase in test ordering and consultation really is a problem, isn't it, Rick? Well, virtually everybody who's written about this says that one of the consequences of being sued is ordering more tests. And that, on the face of it, sounds like maybe more tests will prevent me from making mistakes. But when that's drilled down to and looked at a little bit more carefully, that's really not the case. And you have an ethical obligation to the patient to order what's appropriate, but not to overorder. That also, I think, is a factor in here. You can see risk-averse doctors, and they tend to be big orderers, but I don't think that they're any less likely to be sued because the mistakes still get made. And this is about a mistake. It's not about being a bad person. And if you get involved into a car accident and you accidentally bump into another car, you don't go into the corner, start sucking your thumb and rocking back and forth for a year or two at a time. You just say, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. The insurance company, that's why I have insurance, will cover it. i got to go about my business. But physicians take this so personally that it is so destructive for them. They need to understand largely that this is a human endeavor. I will occasionally make mistakes. I'm sorry. That's why I have insurance. But I cannot let this kill me in terms of the emotional side of this and destroy my life and practice and my happiness and my relationships over this affair. 
physicians overreact to these things all of the time because they take it so personally. But it's easier said than done, though, Rick, is what I've noticed, that everybody who gets sued, there's a certain amount of anger. You need an intellectual IND of the pus here because people do get upset and angry about the fact that they're being forced to participate on a ball field in an arena where they're not trained to go. go Plus, ahead. it's very adversarial. The job is to make you look like an uncaring, incompetent jerk. And that's one of the bad parts about this. If it was just, well, yes, a mistake was made, we'll compensate the patient, we're going to try not to do that again, and you're not a bad person, and it wasn't so destructive, that's the bad part in the American system is they have to portray you as an incompetent jerk. That's absolutely right, that it becomes adversarial from the first moment. And even though you would like to be empathetic, whether you made a mistake or not, it's very hard to do in that setting, and it raises a lot of angst on everyone's part. Julian, you made a comment which I think is interesting, and that is we see a lot of people sued fall into what we call the Stockholm Syndrome where they start to sort of identify with their captors or aggressors saying, well, gee, maybe I did make a big mistake. Maybe I did do this. Maybe I did do that. I think an important part of the process is going through it and actually deciding what really happened. And if you didn't make some major error, then you didn't do it. And to beat yourself with a whip, sort of a hair shirt mentality, is not going to do anyone any good. But that's where you get into these conversations with your colleagues trying to defend your practice so that they'll give you the pat on your head that you're looking for. Discuss them with your lawyer or someone else then who you can talk to who can get you out of that. I mean, people sue for all kinds of reasons. You might not have made a mistake. Sometimes they just didn't like the shirts you were wearing or eventually they had a bad outcome and they want someone to blame for it. And then they name everyone who's involved. So kind of getting an idea of what exactly happened, what decisions were made, and figuring out what your role in all that is important as well. I want to ask you a little more about when this happened, the relationship between you and your husband. Most of the people who get sued will tell you that their golf scores go up their test ordering goes up, their moodiness goes up, and their good times with their spouse go down. And I don't just mean their intercourse. I mean, I'm talking about you know, sort of happy moments, sort of carefree time. Did you get any of that? Did you feel any of that during this period of time? I did. I think I'm extremely lucky that my husband is as supportive as he was throughout the whole process. But I think he felt very hopeless because there was very little he could do. And those episodes you mentioned of random crying, of every time I went to check the mail, of having the fear of God, is today going to be the day when it comes in the mail and what's going on today, that he had no control over. And he could say, I'm sorry, a million times, and he could ask me what he could do to make it better, but nothing fixed it. And I think the time course of it, because it drags on for so long, you know, I would finally get to the point where I was on my feet and feeling good and kind of getting into a groove, and then I would get another email about it six months down the line, and it would take me right back to square one of where I was the day that I got that first notification. And having to go through that process over and over and over again was extremely difficult. I want to give you sort of the last shot here to, if you're talking to one of your young colleagues, and you had to give them two minutes on the experience, what they should be doing to protect their own mind and their own soul, 
what would you tell them? I think, Greg, if there's really three big lessons that I took out of this, one is that being sued does not equate being a bad doctor. As Rick mentioned, it is not personal, and this happens all the time, and not to fault yourself. Number two is that you're not alone. Although you can't discuss the specifics of a case with your colleagues, there are a number of resources available out there that you don't have to feel that you are isolated and alone and scared to death. And number three is that you can't let it defeat you or consume you. Life has to go on beyond that moment, beyond that case. To learn what you can from it, learn how to document better, learn better communication, always be nice to your patients. But ultimately, while you can minimize your risk, you cannot eliminate it. So do the best you can to learn from the experience, but move on. Yeah, the only way you can totally eliminate risk in the emergency medicine business is to stop practicing and take up another career because you are the person who sits at the doorway to see anything and everything that comes in. And it will not always be clear when you're seeing that patient what the answer is. I would like to thank you for your time, Jillian, and I would remind the listeners that in Hamlet, Hamlet is charged by his father to do three things. The first one is avenge his death, avenge the wrong. The second one is not harm the innocent, which in that case was Hamlet's mother. And the last one was to protect your own mind and soul. I think that Hamlet Sr.'s advice to his son is the exact same advice I would give to people going through the medical legal process. Juliet, we again thank you very much for your time and your courage in coming on and speaking with us today. Thanks, Juliet, very much as well. Thank you, Rick, and thank you, Greg. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Jillian. That really was a great interview. And as far as I'm concerned, this problem is not going to go away. Physicians honestly believe that their practice is the core of their being. And when that happens, and when they threaten the only thing of importance to you, which is your practice, I think that physicians are going to suffer tremendous amount whenever a lawsuit appears in the mail. I think the idea here is to try to be more rational about it. I mean, you can try to tell other people it's okay, it's okay, but they need to fundamentally understand that this is just business. And unfortunately, in the American system, it's so adversarial that they have to make you look like an uncaring jerk of a physician in the process of taking the money. But the fact is, is that that's the way they do it here. By the way, it's not just business. To us, It represents something larger. This isn't you're running a hot dog stand. This is what you spent your life studying to do. And when that is threatened, particularly the way Jillian talked about it, she thought she was a useless, awful physician. And as soon as you start to view yourself that way, this is what you got, boys. And when you threaten that, I think that this is where real psychological problems begin. Okay, Greg, you got a case for us? I've got several cases. Here's one. I don't know how, in 2009, we can still be talking about appendicitis, but we're still talking about appendicitis. Appendicitis. Well, and part of that, I think, is because some of the science about this is misunderstood and just plain wrong. And by the way, the way we handle it in the United States is not the way they handle it in other countries. When I was in England and saw people with appendicitis, 
they didn't come rushing in to operate on those folks. They were operated upon the next day, and they knew a certain number of them were leaking already. You know, they don't seem to think that there's a problem with that. And I'm not sure why in this country we've convinced ourselves that if it's not out of there in three or four hours, something major has gone wrong. So what was this Pendasotis case? Just another of Mr. Well, Pendasotis case? This is, by the way, a Tennessee case, and it was a failure to diagnose on a patient who was a little bit different. He was a 60-year-old, came into the department, had a little nausea, a little vomiting, and the physician's assistant who saw the case then presented it to the attending. And once the attending saw the case, again, had decided that the patient was not an immediate threat at that time. He then arranged, because the 60-year-old did not have a doctor at that hospital, he was cared for at the Veterans Administration Hospital. So he arranged to have the patient transferred to the Veterans Administration, where they eventually made the diagnosis and took the appendix out. Now, what the plaintiff claimed, and this is where we start to rip our hair out and get very angry, said that it was a violation of the standard of care not to do a CT and not to have had him immediately taken to surgery at that hospital at that time. Also, the claim is, was this an EMTALA violation because he sent him out without a diagnosis and was this a financially motivated transfer because they moved him to another hospital? Geez, financially motivated? Who would ever send a patient to the VA Medical Center if it wasn't financially motivated? Of course it's financially motivated. Well, but of course, if you ask the patient and say, you know, you're covered at the VA. We're happy to keep you, but they're going to send you a bill. What do you want to do? I mean, isn't that logical? Yeah, right. but you're not allowed to intimidate patients with regards to these billing issues and coercing them to be transferred. Rick, your very presence is intimidating patients. <laughs> I mean, to be cared for by a major giant in the field like you must be terribly intimidating. But to me, this is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. If they're going to do the CT at the other hospital... You send them over there. You've called. You've made the arrangements. The patient's taken in. You know what? This is a bunch of crap. Well, it's hard to believe. Did this doctor lose? No, no. This is a defense verdict. There you go. For the doctor. Thank you. Wait wait, wait a second. Did he lose? Yes. Excuse me. You told me. Yeah. He lost (laughs) $110,000 probably in costs that are now recorded against his name somewhere because whether you defend it, whether you settle it, no matter what you do, There's a cost involved in everything. And this went to trial? This went to trial. Wow. Unfortunate, isn't it? Well, there is this question about, well, doctor, you missed the diagnosis. Had you done a CT, wouldn't that have been more likely to make the diagnosis and not delayed the diagnosis as occurred? So you can see this logic sounds pretty straightforward to me when you don't do it. I think it's a rejection of scientific fact. The fact that he was going to have to have a scar in his belly. He was going to have to have the appendix removed. Oh, not in this case. Yeah, I'm talking about, in general, this idea of, well, doctor, was there some other test that could have been done to help make this diagnosis? Yeah, well, who knows? Here's another case for you, and I like this one because it illustrates a lot of different ideas. This is a failure to work up a man with a chest and back pain for cardiac problems, despite the fact that he'd had two previous visits in the past week. So... As we've talked about on this show before, the third visit, third visit is an admit. Third visit is rethink it. You know what? If they're back the third time, there's something wrong. 
We might as well do something about it anyway. This guy was seen for his third visit, 54 years of age, and the doctor took a look at him, still thought he had probably muscular skeletal, some pain going through to his back, that sort of thing. Through to the back. Through to the back, and because he'd had an EKG on a previous visit, he went ahead and this time said, well, that's probably not the reason. They probably ruled it out. So he this time did not do a repeat EKG, did not do any markers, did not do anything else for the patient, gave him some more pain medicine and sent him home. And of course, he did come back dead within the next 24 hours. This was, as you might imagine, a costly verdict. This is a man who was still working for a living, had family, had a very good job. There was no history in this gentleman. He was a drug abuser or an abuser of the emergency department or anything like that. So here's a guy who's never been in an emergency department for 20 years and now has three visits in one week. Guys, I'm going to give you three chances to get this right. (laughs) Right. It's my first time here, and you're going to get three chances. You know, I have no idea what was actually said in closing arguments. But the plaintiff is probably going to say, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, we'll give you one shot at it. Okay, strike one. We'll give you two shots at it. Strike two. But tell me, ladies and gentlemen, his third visit within a week on a guy who never goes to the doctor, never goes to the doctor. Do you think he might have something wrong? That's strike three. Now it's strike three and you're in. You're in deep shit. Pay up, sucker. Pay up. What was the diagnosis here? This guy had a myocardial infarction on autopsy and $1.3 million changed hands. Oopsie. Oops. These things happen. Thank you very much. Well, if you had listened to last month's... And of course you did. ...audio, it was about (laughs) the workup of the undiagnosed chest pain patient. And I think actually Mel and I came to some consensus with regards to, if you're not sure what the diagnosis is, and we're generally not, you better consider getting that EKG and getting those markers. This guy had chest pain, back pain. I don't know. Sounds like to me he was having a dissection. Yeah, I thought so too. As soon as you give it that pain in the back kind of thing. It almost doesn't matter which one he had. And, and I guess my advice to colleagues is when they're in a third time, I don't care why you're admitting well, it. Well, I, I certainly don't want it understood that third time back mandates admission. I mean, that's not correct either. If that's not running through your head, Rick, I think you've made a mistake. I think it ought to run through your brain because the standard workup. I'm not disagreeing with yeah. you. I just don't want everybody to quote us as saying, well, this is what is expected of you. They need to be admitted. That's not the case. Another doctor ought to see the patient. Another fresh set of eyes. The big problem here is a prior diagnosis precludes a new diagnosis. The right diagnosis. In that case, <laughs> the right diagnosis. Yes. Yes, these things do happen. Let me give you one more case. Okey-dokey. Just to think about things. This is a case where a gentleman, 48 years of age, comes into an office of his doctor who immediately sends him to the emergency department and he has some alteration of speaking, some ambulation problems, and the emergency doc takes a good look at him and does a CT of the head. And what do you think the diagnosis is? What's the most common crap diagnosis that comes off a CT of the head? Sinusitis. And by the way, if you take people at random with no symptoms... An and incidental do, finding. It's an incidental finding, the thickening. That doesn't sound like sinusitis to me. You can't walk right? Yeah, yeah. Well, see, this is... It's an problem. invasive fungal form of sinusitis <laughs> in your brain. <laughs> exactly. This is a gentleman who was sent home on medication, an antibiotic, and something to decongest him. Cipro. Uh, what? Cipro. Something that's good for your tendons. <laughs> <laughs> in, in any event, he's sent home... 
and there is a $3.5 million Ooh. settlement Ooh. before trial because they didn't want this thing to go to a jury on someone who had meningitis. Oh, meningitis. meningitis. You didn't tell us about was there any fever or anything like that? There wasn't fever at the time he came to the emergency department. I mean, that's certainly but he not did, a typical presentation of meningitis. But he did have altered mental status, trouble speaking, problems moving. <laughs> and I think that this guy decided that he's got sinusitis was not a good decision. He may have actually had sinusitis. He called it a subdural empyema. Well, he may have. Unfortunately, what he didn't have was typical sinusitis. But that's too simple. There's got to be more because... You got to have... Really, did you send a guy home that was altered mental status and not walking properly? I mean, I don't... Hopefully it was an incredibly subtle one. Yes. It is so easy for us to be a yeah. Monday morning quarterback. It is. Stuff. It is. Idiot. It is. Okay. What's up next? Let's go within the news. If we look at the October 2008 issue of ASAP News, they did actually have an excellent article, which I would refer people to, which is, how was admissibility of expert witness testimony decided? You and I and everybody else, we start to wring our hands. We want to throw things. We become very angry at testimony, which is allowed into the courtroom. And where did it come from? And how do the lawyers decide? There is no uniform basis for this across the United States. Some people use what they call the Fry decision, which is an older decision. And there are a lot of states which use Fry. There's also case-by-case states. North Dakota, Wisconsin use a what they call the relevancy standard. Does the judge, the finder of fact, consider the information being presented by the expert relevant? South Carolina examines the reliability of the evidence standard, and so they will have evidentiary hearings to look at the reliability. Virginia tests the quote-unquote reliability of the scientific technique that is used to determine this information. But what most of us talk about is the 1991 Daubert v. Merrill Dow case. And if you'll remember, that's the person who gave testimony on the Bendictin causing mental dysfunction. Bendictin was given to pregnant women who were nauseated. There were some children born to those women, as you might expect. Statistically, it happens. Children with problems. And an expert who had done work looking at beagle puppies and that sort of thing said, well, this is probably why it happened. Well, this caused a firestorm. And that was in 1991 because at that time, the court upheld that person's testimony as coming into evidence. Merrill Dow was so mad, they took this case to the U.S. Supreme Court in 1993 that they ruled that there had to be some scientific basis here. There needed to be a gatekeeper to look at the reasonableness and the methodology to prevent or keep, quote-unquote, junk science out of the courtroom. And so I think that most doctors don't realize how important the deposition phase of a trial is because in your state you may be able to get what they call a Daubert challenge or Daubert hearing before this goes to a trial court in front of a jury. They can demand a motion in front of the judge where they have to show that there is a reasonable methodology which determined the basis on which this expert is giving opinion. And that's why a doctor who is working with his attorney can do himself a lot of good. 
listen to the discussion, listens to the science, write out the questions so that we have some scientific basis to defend why he's giving this opinion or that opinion. The other thing you always want to do is ask an expert, isn't it true that a reasonable group of intelligent, scientifically grounded physicians believe otherwise? And if there are two different opinions, then either one of them may comport with the standard of care. So do lawyers, are they okay with you trying to do that? So I got sued and I'm telling my lawyer, that expert testimony is crap and here's why and here's some papers and here's an expert in the field. Do they encourage that or are they no? No, no, no. Most of them encourage that because they will take that, dissect it, and in states that allow this, they will do a Daubert challenge and can get a hearing prior to this person speaking to the jury in the actual trial to find out whether we're dealing here with science which does not meet the standard. Well, we were talking about egregious testimony and the things that you can do ASAP and AAEM. Greg's got an article from... This is ASAP News, October 2008, Rick. And what they report in this is They want to review what the admissibility is for expert testimony at the time of trial in a medical malpractice case. Now, there isn't a doctor that I know that hasn't been infuriated when he heard plaintiff's counsel speak and throw out certain ideas and concepts, which he thinks is totally ridiculous. All of us have been there. The various states of the United States use different tests as to whether a judge can allow testimony in. And understand the trial judge is the trier of fact. He gets to decide what the facts are for the initial trial. Now, we always have opportunities at appeals, motions, things like that, of getting things reversed. But the judge pretty much gets to say what's going on. And the states are not consistent in this. The one that most states use, however, is based on a federal decision. 1991 in Daubert, V. Merrill Dow Pharmaceuticals. This was the case, by the way, that had to do with giving a Benedictine to pregnant women. And some of those children that they delivered did, of course, have intellectual and mental status problems. In the trial against Merrill Dow, there was testimony by a researcher who had done work with dogs, etc., etc. No human research, by the way. And he said, well, this is a good possibility that Bendictin caused this problem. Merrill Dow was furious. They went crazy. This went to the appellate court. The appellate court passed it to the Supreme Court of the United States. And in 1993, they came down with a decision that said, basically, there's got to be some rational basis, some methodology that allowed this to be put forward. There's got to be a reasonable contingent of the scientific community that believes something. So in this case, you're talking about junk science, science about dogs that really was not trying to be extrapolated to other people. So the issues can be junk science or egregious testimony, either one. You're focusing on the junk guy. Well, they can be both. I mean, obviously, egregious, a term from the Latin, which means from the herd, means it is away from the main body Mm -hmm. of what goes on. That's egregious testimony. And if 90% or 95% or 99% of the medical community says that that hasn't been proven yet, then we ought to be able to present that to the jury. Or if you have an idea, you have a concept, that really nobody else in the profession supports. 
you know, the jury ought to have a chance to know that, or the judge ought to have an opportunity to bar that from the ears of the jury. I'm trying to understand the process. So let's say, Greg, you see somebody and it's Mr. Pendicitis, and the lawyer decides that he's you know, going to go against you. And then he finds this expert, and his name is Rick Bucutter. And Rick Bucutter says, I'm an expert in this area. And if Greg had have just done a rectal temperature, he would have made the diagnosis. And so you're saying before it even gets to trial, your lawyer can say, now here's a bit of expert testimony from Rick Bucutter. who says a rectal temperature would have made all the difference. But nobody agrees with that. That's bullshit. That should be thrown out. So that can't even go into the jury room. It can't be used as evidence at all. So before you even get there, it's thrown out. The Daubert case, which was a federal case, said that there needs to be a gatekeeper and the judge has an obligation to review this stuff and be the gatekeeper as to what's going to go to the jury before the jury hears it, not arguing afterwards. Now, again, probably 15, 20, 25 states have adopted a Daubert-type standard, which means in those states, if you have what you consider to be egregious testimony, you can go and get an Daubert hearing, which is not in front of a jury. This is just with the judge, and the judge can make a decision then whether this is admissible or not admissible to be heard by the jury at a time of trial. All right, so this is all occurring before you get in front of the jury, and you're taking it to the judge and saying, this is crap, and the judge is going to say, no, I think it's okay, or it's crap, and if it's gone, it's gone. It can't be put before the jury. Yeah, I was actually involved in a case where someone, an emergency doc, not board certified, said, oh, pretty much most of those thoracic aortas that dissect, we diagnose those, and 80 or 90% of them are saved. Now, this is someone who came into an emergency department and within two hours was dead at a hospital, which was two and a half hours from any place that actually had a thoracic surgeon. I want to see that literature. I want to see that data, which said that those people are saved. The other thing is he said, well, the little change on the EKG is not a big thing. Most people would say that if you've now changed your EKG, you've actually dissected, back dissected through your coronary arteries. And the number of those people who live is minusculely small. That was, in my opinion, junk science. All right, so that's something you can do before. And then we have, after you've gone to trial, ASAP and AM have this process by which if if these experts are coming out with absolute crap, then this is something that our colleges are doing afterwards saying, you know, Rick Bucutter's expert testimony is really crap. And we have a way as a college to file something that says, don't use this guy as an expert. What we have is we have the power of censure, which if you go in front of the ethics committee of the American College and they review what's been said, they have the right to send you a letter of censure saying that the quality of your testimony does not meet the standards we'd expect for an emergency physician. Is there a place where we can go and see the names of the censured doctors so that when that doctor is testifying against you subsequently, you can say, doctor, have you ever been censured by the American College of Emergency Physicians for egregious testimony? I have not seen anything. I read a lot of the ASAP stuff, and I've not seen it. I don't know there's a place on the website. And I'm not so sure, honestly, this may be a little unfair, that they've done anything that can help me because I don't know who these doctors are? Uh, Not true. You have a perfect right, and your attorney can call ASEP. They can speak to the ASEP in-house counsel. I'll be happy to give you the phone number, (laughs) and you can put it directly to them. And they will tell you, yes or no, 
whether they have ever had a letter of censure issued. But they're not publishing these names in any of the ASEP news. They or are the, not. It's not like outing the rapists, I mean, or the drunk drivers or anything like that, not, or the Johns. It's not what I would like it to be, but understand this. If you're a defense counsel in emergency medicine and you don't know about querying the in-house counsel at ASEP about letters of censure, you've made a serious mistake. And I know a lot of those people who have been censured, the four who have been censured. And I think that if I'm working on a case and I see that name, I immediately notify the attorney so that he can put this person on notice. Yeah, I kind of imagine that goes well if you're about to give your (laughs) spiel and the lawyer says, and how often have you been censured? Have you been censured? And you're like, yes. And then he explains to the jury, well, this means that his colleagues think he's an idiot. Yeah. We're not going to go well. Let me tell you, though, that the college, for reasons that are pretty easily understandable, does not want to get in the middle of pissing contests between various doctors or put unreasonable restraint on free speech and activity. They're very much afraid of someone coming back on them legally. So they're going to be as conservative as possible saying this took place. This is the date that the letter was issued. Thank you very much. But they are not, and we should not expect them to be overly aggressive on this issue. And if Jerry Hoffman were here, he would say, the only doctors who have been censured, it was involving them defending a patient, going after another doctor. They were a plaintiff's expert. And they said, well, how come you never go after any physician experts that are defending doctors' behavior? My answer to that would be the college has never denied I'm sure. going after a I'm physician. Sure. And the but- point is... If someone would like to bring that testimony, we'll be happy to look at it. The only names that are submitted are plaintiffs' experts' names. As it should be. (laughs) (laughs) So, that's just a little bit from your college in ASAP News. How about a few letters? Let's do some letters. letters. Tom Perry, Sour Lake, Texas. Great name. I'm sure I'd like to move there. They move that real estate real great. Big sign. Welcome to Sour Lake. (laughs) He had a 34-year-old chronic psych patient with a neck injury and free air in the neck. The patient refused to be transported to a higher level of care where they would see an ENT doctor. He called the police, the doctor did, and hospital administration. And they said since the patient was oriented, he was competent. Dr. Perry disagreed. Can you get Greg Henry or the panel to talk about competency? They enjoy the tapes, talks, and they enjoy, Mel, you breaking in for summarizing. Thank you. need to do more of that summarizing. Let me get this straight. I wrote back to him and said, orientation has got nothing to do with determining competence whatsoever. Psychotic patients are often oriented, usually oriented, but are they a danger to themselves or others? And in this case, this person was clearly a danger to themselves. Dr. Perry wrote back and said, well, isn't this a state-by-state kind of matter? And it's like, I can't envision any state saying orientation determines that you're competent. I can't envision that. The wording in the law may vary state to state, and I certainly haven't looked at every state's statute, but you use the magic words, Rick. Do they, by virtue of their mental illness or emotional problems, constitute a danger to self or others. We restrain people every day who are oriented. We have people brought in every day who the family gives us a story that they want to kill themselves. They're sitting at home, loading their pistol, things like that. The family brings them in. Do they know the date? Yes. Do they know their name? Yes. Can they carry on minimal conversation? Yes. Do you think I'm letting them out the door? I think the question is, Aren't we given a little bit of leeway as emergency docs in how to act? And when in doubt, 
act in defense of the patient. My only question is, if they brought in your brother, what would you want that emergency department to do at that moment in time? I think you're going to have a very difficult time if you let that guy go and he kills himself. The other thing is, if you keep him or you transfer him to the higher level of care, what are they going to sue you for? He's still alive. He's well. He got the care he wrongful needed. Wrongful protection of life. Yeah, wrong, <laughs> wrong, wrongful life. You know well, what? You I'm, can't sue for wrongful life. But aren't physicians worried about, it's obviously bogus because nobody ever successfully sues for this battery. I'm holding you against your will. I'm holding you down. Then I sober up from my cocaine, what drugs, whatever. Right mind right. going to and take his like, case on for battery? Well, see, the problem is lawyers, remember, rats, cheese. Money lawyers. <laughs> this is, yeah, but battery is criminal, not civil. So there's no money here. That's right. That's right. Battery is not a money thing. But the other thing is, you still have to look at where they came, why they came. This isn't a guy you met in a bar. Someone brought a patient who they had reasonable concern about their mental status, harming themselves or someone else, and you acted to take care of that. I don't see where the plaintiff has a chance in hell of winning that case. I mean, what are reasonable people going to want to have done? If you're a reasonable person sitting in the emergency department waiting to have your kids seen, and there's a guy who's threatening or acting strange, you want the emergency physician to act in that case. All right. All right. So I don't down. think you need to worry about it. Okay. We've been over before. You need to just do the right, do the right thing. thing. Here's another one. This is a little bit more complicated then. I'm a relatively new subscriber to Risk Management Monthly and I've enjoyed the content greatly. However, I was curious about a comment Dr. Henry made in a recent edition. There were jokes about Dr. Henry was called into service during a flight and that he was at least awarded free miles or a voucher. I forget what you said, but I think that you were making the point that you didn't get any kind of pat on the head or a little free ticket or something like that. He said, it was my understanding that if we offer our services on a flight, we should not accept anything in return, including free miles or a free drink. This would, in fact, equal payment for services and would negate any legal protections under the Good Samaritan Law. Am I in error? This is from Sarah Lohler, who's a physician's assistant from Detroit, Michigan, your yep. hometown, more or less. Yep. Yep. Well, Sarah, you've raised the right issue. And if you look at the question of Good Samaritan behavior, it's a three-part test. That is, there did not exist prior to the event a doctor-patient relationship. You had no duty, preformed duty, to do something for the patient at that period of time. You essentially volunteer your time, and you did not send a bill. You notice... There was no gift given by the patient. This was a gift given or offered by the airline itself. There you go. And so there is no violation of the Good Samaritan Act. You did not send a bill to the patient. You did not in any way elicit anything for your services. And you intervened out of serendipity. You were there when something bad happened and out of the goodness of your heart participated. The fact that the airline was willing to offer you a little something, believe me, as little as possible, in no way, in my opinion, breaks the Good Samaritan bond. Well, Sarah basically says also, I forgot this part here, she was talking about reveling in past declined free cocktails. She, I guess, took the position, no, I won't accept that free cocktail, and she Blew the opportunity to have a bunch of free cocktails, I guess, flying out of Detroit. Sarah, <laughs> next time that happens, 
call me and I'll drink the free cocktails. <laughs> okay. That's no. a good one, actually, because that scared the hell of me when I first read that. Like, because I've done the same thing. I've looked after patients on international flights quite a few times and I've taken the bottle of wine and said, thank you very much. Yes, of course. But you didn't take it from the patient. No. Thank you. Maybe he did take the patient's bottle of wine. It was under his <laughs> arm. You know, Rob Wood, here we go. Our hospital in Toledo, they act as online medical control for the paramedics transporting patients. Last week, I was working and received a call. The paramedics were transporting a patient, a head bleed, from an outlying facility to our neuro ICU. They called me wanting to me to give some medication to treat the patient's elevated blood pressure and route. This is a patient I did not evaluate and was not going to evaluate. They were going straight to the ICU, but they wanted me to provide an order for medication. This patient was not coming to my ear and was not going to be evaluated me. I certainly have no problem providing medication to patients en route to my ER for my evaluation. Any concerns about this? Does the fact that we are online medical control make a difference? I assume many groups deal with these types of issues. He goes on, but I think the essence of it is here. He's online medical control. He's not going to see the patient. They're going to bypass him. If he thinks it's medically appropriate, should he treat if he's being asked to treat? Well, first of all, let me just say that around the country, this is not much of a problem. And the reason is very simple. If we all decide to go offline and not control, the system's screwed. You're not making anything on it. In fact, most states, state of Michigan as an example, has made the advice you give online, okay, essentially at the level of willful and wanton. You'd have to suggest that they cut his head off (laughs) or do something like that. Now, without discussing the merits of the science here, most people with head injuries who have hypertension, the reason they have hypertension... But you're going into the science. Uh, that's the science. So I'm not big on it. But I would not be very worried about online advice given in a situation like this simply because, and again, I do not know the Ohio statute. He can certainly have his hospital attorney check on that. But EMS in most states is tightly protected from that because they understand you're not there. You can't see the patient. What you're doing is giving very basic kinds of orders. And I understand that. Well, there's going to be more and more of that. Actually, we transport people from our hospital who have STEMIs to the local STEMI center by paramedics. If during that trip something goes wrong, they contact their base station. The base station nurse and the base station doctor are not going to see that patient. It's not going to the patient. It's an inter-facility transfer for this case. And who else is going to give an order? Right. Well, I fully believe that if a doctor is at a base station and he is doing what he can do for the EMS system, there needs to be protection for that. And most state laws protect it. What the hospital can also do is if they'd like you to be giving this kind of advice, cover you medically legally, that they will provide the insurance coverage for any advice given in your online duties. After all, what other doctor in the hospital has to give advice over the radio on somebody in an ambulance that they'll never see? Dr. Wood says, with Justin Argan, Shea Vineyard Pin and Wah from Panther Creek, highly recommend. Oh, there you go. Oh, oh, very good. Thanks for an outstanding program. I put that in myself. Oh. No, I, no, he did, he did <laughs> say that. Yes, he did. You know. How about another one? Greg, Mel, and Rick. There seem to be some hesitancy on your part as to whether you should test sexual assault victims for STDs at the time of the forensic exam. That's when we did the interview with mm-hmm. Carrie the whole day. I think for two reasons that the answer should have been emphatically no. No, this is about doing testing for STDs at the time of a forensic exam. This doctor says no. Medically, what good is it going to do you? 
You all agreed that the victim would be covered prophylactically for STD, so why test? It won't change anything that you are going to do. If the surgeon has agreed to take the patient to the OR for the appendectomy without a CT, are you going to say, wait a minute, let's radiate this guy first? There's some logic there. But aren't we trying to look at, well, this is about these cases where you're trying to impugn the virtue of the patient. Yes, you already had a pre-existing STD. Obviously, she sleeps around a bit kind of thing, et cetera, et cetera. Continue the letter here. Number two, forensically, that's the part that interests us. Whether the patient has an STD or not should not be part of what the jury thinks about when deciding whether the occurrence was an assault or a consensual. The only person that doing the STD testing on could possibly help would be the defendant. If one of the tests is positive, the defense paints the victim as a tramp. With the rate of chlamydia present in the population, I don't think you can say that having an STD makes it more likely that the attack was consensual and not an assault. Hard to argue with that. Well, there are really two separate arguments here. First one is, if you're going to treat, why test? And I understand that, except that if you do have somebody, if you're doing a pelvic exam, frequently as part of our pelvic exams, we do check for STDs, and we do occasionally pick up hidden STDs. It's not a bad thing to do. Secondly, this person is right. The issue of whether they had a sexually transmitted disease is totally immaterial to whether they were raped. And I think that people are starting to understand that and juries are starting to understand that. That, after all, if you test them on the night that they had the assault, alleged assault, took place, clearly that wasn't a part of the rape one way or the other. It shouldn't even be a part of the issue. Bob said, who wrote this, and I thought he had some good points. Otherwise, he loves the program. Otherwise. <laughs> Otherwise. There's a little, little caveat in there. All right. You know, well, Bob, I hope we've thrown you a bone on this one and that you be that careful you like the answer. Here. He says he's a, a regular multi-program subscriber and conference attendee. So, you know, You're right, Bob. Mess, whatever you say, Bob. <laughs> Bob, thank we, you, Bob. Where were you? <laughs> Love you long time, Bob. <laughs> Jim Wesley. We are using Dragon Natural Speaking as part of our EMR. Occasionally, it puts in some wrong words that are not caught before signing the chart. How would lawyers play these occasional errors? Have there been any legal issues concerning these charting errors based on an electronic system? Well, it's funny that we did a little session on electronic records. And in fact, it was on last month where we talked about ways that electronic errors can get you in trouble. Kathy Barwin yeah. did that one, yes. What do you think, Greg? I do have an opinion about this, but I want you to go first. Well, what I do, my standard is I will dictate. And it's one of these things that you know how you get a letter occasionally from an attorney or someone that says dictated but not reviewed. That's my view of how I do my work. I send these things off. And I understand there can be an occasional word or problem happen, but I don't read all of my cases. If I had to do that, I just wouldn't have the time to actually review every dictation I had done. And I think what you have to say in court is, oh, there isn't a person in this room who hasn't had one of these programs make some subtle mistake. It's rarely the kind of thing where it totally changes the case, Rick. These are small errors. I have never seen that, and I understand mine's a case series of one person looking at cases, but I've never seen that kind of translation error actually cause or be the central point of a lawsuit. Yes, I would agree. And it's interesting that 
You and I agree 102%. Actually, Kevin Clower and I were talking about this because there's more of this putting Dragon in and do you need to go back and fix Dragon or even fix a transcription by a, a human being. And he came up with the identical advice. Kevin's going to law school. And it basically says, I never read any of this stuff. If you say... Oh, yeah, I go back and correct it. Well, once you stay, you acknowledge you correct some of it, then you didn't correct all of it, doctor. So the idea is leave them alone. Do exactly what Greg said. Signed but not read, whatever you call it. That's the way to go. It basically says, I just assume this stuff is correct. Yes, there's going to be a mistake every once in a while. But don't go back and start fixing some parts and then others because you're vulnerable then. I know those people who at the end of every chart put SPT, signed prior to transcription. And if he has to go back and look at it, fine. But you know what? When you think about it, maybe you'll do 20,000 cases before there's one lawsuit brought. It's not worth it. I mean, it's just not worth the time and effort to read all those damn charts. No, it's bad enough just generating them. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like reading them. It'd know. be torture. Last letter. Gary Josephson. Our group has a contract with an HMO whose hospitalists discharge patients from the ED after consulting for admission. Could you highlight specific cases where this situation has resulted in legal action and any differences between successful and unsuccessful suits? I'm mostly interested in what can be done during the case, not the trial. In other words, how can successful suits be prevented? So the hospitalist comes down. You say, I think we ought to admit the case. Hospitalist comes down and say, what are you thinking about? This patient can go home. Hospitalist discharges them. Greg will tell you that you still have some obligation to the patient. Absolutely. Let me tell you that it's good that the hospitalist came down. It's good that the hospitalist took a look at the patient, filled out his or her own history physical consult, gave an opinion, but it's just an opinion. If you wouldn't let your brother go home or your father go home, get yourself another opinion. You can even arrange to transfer the patient to another hospital. I think what you have to realize is the majority of the liability will fall to that person who came down. But you could still be tagged onto this thing because what they'll say is, doctor, couldn't you have gotten another opinion? Couldn't you have done this or that? And whenever those sorts of things happen, I think there's at least a little exposure out there of a problem. This seems remarkably unfair to me that I'm working a system, say a Kaiser system, although they have an arbitrated system, but let's say something like a Kaiser system. They have hospitalists, they come down, I say, this guy's got chest pain, I think he should be admitted. Joe Smo or Jill Smo comes down and says, no, I'm taking control of this, it's now my patient, and I've set up a plan, and they'll go, and they come back the next day with an MI. It seems unfair that I would then get sued for that. I told you... And then the system and the hospital sent another doctor to take charge of the case and did something different. By the way, the best thing you can have on that chart is at 8.05, Dr. So-and-so in the department and has officially taken control of the case. That will go a long way to sealing and isolating your problem. The second thing is if they represent the hospital, they're the hospital's hospitalists. I mean, that is the hospital that is setting something up. And remember what I talked about in one of the earlier tapes? We talked about the cross-indemnification clauses. If you were to lose money or your group was to lose money in a case like this, and you have cross-indemnification clauses, that seems that ought to pass directly right back through to the hospital, and they ought to cover that case. Here's a subtle difference. Now you've asked a surgeon to come see a patient who you think has a surgical abdomen. The surgeon is being requested as a consultant. He is not a hospitalist. He can admit the patient should he choose to, but he's rendering advice to you. And the advice they render to you, you would like to reject. Well, he said, no, no, he can say go home. I don't think it's really anything serious. And the ER doc is still 
very concerned. Isn't that a little different situation? It is a little different situation, but what you have to remember is you and I live in a political world. If some bowl surgeon who's very big on the hospital staff comes down, when you do pull the sword of saying, I'm going to get another opinion, better have relevant grounds. I hope you have good grounds. The other thing is you can always mitigate this by saying, you know what, Dr. So-and-so, I don't feel that good about this particular case. I'm going to keep them for the next four or five hours, and I'll call you every couple hours just to tell you what their vital signs are and how they're doing. They can't stop you from doing that. And again, it goes back to the question, if this was your kid, what would you do? And if you want another opinion, get it. If you want to keep them in the emergency department, you know, we always forget. We think it has to be in or out. There's always going to be those few patients who we're willing to watch for a little bit longer I think that's perfectly fine. You know, I agree with that, especially at night. Something is not particularly clear. Don't just start this bumpity at 3 o'clock in the morning in a gray zone case. Everything is better when the sun's up. Right. Just keep them there and just sit on them, and that's okay. I mean, it's inconvenient to go home at 3 o'clock, especially in a case that you're not feeling 100% about. That's always true in sight cases. Sight disease is killed by sunlight. And it dries up. It, it really does. It dries up. And so as soon as the lights of the sun strike those people and other resources become available, they feel a lot better now and know they didn't really want to kill themselves. One last point. You told me a long time ago about a case where the ER doctor was sued. I don't know whether it was successful or not. When a consultant came in and said, you can send the patient home. Yes. And that there was an obligation that you had to the patient. They bought your services. That was your patient. And you failed your obligation to do what you think should have been done. Well, this is a very famous case. This is a Johnson case in Pennsylvania. And what it was, and I'll take just a minute to talk about this case. An emergency doc looked at a patient who he thought was having an anterior myocardial infarction. Calls up the guy's doctor and the doctor says, well, why don't you send him across town? to the place where I think they get better care. Well, what that means is he's on staff across town and they have residents. So basically the residents do the work and he gets paid for it. The guy said, no, I don't feel comfortable about sending an acute MI across town. So he drove in, looked at the patient. The family knew him. He assumed control, sent the patient across town. And what happened in that 30-minute ride? The patient arrested. Now they sued the primary doctor, but they also sued the emergency doctor and said this, we paid you for four things. Number one, your evaluation, your history and physical. No problem there. Good job. We paid you to review the testing. Good for you. You picked up the infarct. We also retained you for treatment. You put in the IV, you put the oxygen on, you gave them some nitro, gave them some aspirin. We got no problem with that. But we also paid you for your best opinion. So if you disagreed with that doctor, you should have at least shared with us your opinion so we could decide what to do. And when you think about it, the logic of that is good. They did pay for your best opinion. And if you thought it was too dangerous to go across town, you should have said, well, you know, doctors disagree. I personally would keep you here tonight. Your doctor thinks you ought to go. I just want you to think about that. That's where they prevailed was this fourth part, which is your best opinion and if you honestly believe that something else ought to be done, maybe you ought to share that with the patient. But pragmatically speaking, I don't know how that goes down. Do you write that in the chart? Because if you say it, nobody's going to remember it. Do you write in the chart, I think Dr. X is a 
dumbass. And I'm told the patient's family. Yeah, that's doctor dumbass to you, boy. <laughs> and I just don't know how practically that goes down. It seems, again, I seem like, what the hell do you want from me? I brought in the consultant, and you're the consultant's family. The consultant and you have come up with a plan together, and something bad happens. Why the hell did the ER doc keep getting in trouble for this crap? Don't slay the messenger here. <laughs> I'm just telling you how this decision what came do I, down. I throw myself in front of the ambulance? Don't leave! Yeah, don't the, go! The, the pendulum also <laughs> swings another way here. We have had some of our hospitalists who are particularly aggressive about discharging patients because they've got so much financial motivation to do that. That might be a little uncharitable, but there are some hospitals I know that are very aggressive about discharging patients. But we get into some trouble because they don't like it when we tell the patient, I think you're going to need to come in the hospital with your pneumonia. We're going to call your doctor. And then the doctor doesn't do it. And what they're complaining about the hospitalists are is that we're setting an expectation about admission. And then they come in and say, I don't really think they need to be admitted. And we are kind of creating some conflict prematurely. What they're suggesting is say, just call me and don't say anything about who needs admission or who doesn't until I'm there. That way, you're not conveying to the patient an expectation about being admitted, which doesn't get fulfilled. Get that in transfers all the time. Yeah. Uh, the patient has a note from their family doctor to be admitted to the hospital because they have a hangnail. And there's already this expectation. I sent them to the hospital to be admitted. The patient's expected. They got the briefcase <laughs> yeah, exactly. there. It's a like, positive suitcase. Yeah, it's like, uh, yes. no, you don't need to be here. <laughs> or they send you a note saying, oh, I suspect this diagnosis. Please do these tests kind yeah. of thing. And it, it's like... You don't need them. It's not the diagnosis. And you're kind of in a bind because the patient is expecting to get an MRI and two CAT scans. Yeah, I don't want to sound like a broken record here, but there ought to be a hospital policy and cross-indemnification. If they have a right to overrule you, then the hospital bears all costs and shares in well, all Well, that's judgments. only when you're talking about hospitals employed by the hospital. These are consultants. These are independent practitioners, those kinds of then things. Then you know what? A consultant like that is a consultant to you. You're getting a consultation to help you make a decision. That's correct. I think that's how it should be perceived. (laughs) Although some of these consultants can directly, okay, the surgeon says, okay, I'll admit him. You're not admitting him. They've said, I'm going to admit him. Consultant says, I don't think he needs to be admitted, and you do. Well, you're kind of up the crick. You've gotten the consultant. They didn't give you the answer that you wanted. Let me ask you a question. Have we gotten to the point in this country where we can't carry on discussion anymore? Don't you sit down with a colleague and say, here are my thoughts about this. Yeah, but Show me where I'm wrong on this. Again, remember, I've been doing patients now for 34 years. I don't want some child telling me that the patient doesn't have to come in. Yes, but we're also in this era of on-call. Doctors need to be protected. They're hard to get. You don't want to abuse them. Those kinds of things operate as well. You must be seeing this more than I am because I call guys all the time and pretty much they're not happy. You're in Ann Arbor, you know, one of the richest communities in all of... I'm in Michigan, the poorest state in the nation now. Give me a break. No, I think think California's poor. (laughs) It's interesting. I had... uh, But you have such better weather. That's right. I had two Calaisii. Calaisio, yes. and I was talking to an ophthalmologist who also takes call for the ER, and it was interesting to hear from his perspective. It's like, I know all of the ER docs' phone numbers by heart now, and when they call, I don't answer. And he was saying, like, I try to do the right thing, but it's uncompensated care, and I'm trying to run a practice here, and I'm very busy, and it's just, I can't do this crap for you guys anymore. I'm sorry. And I was trying to tell him from the our system, point of view, help us, and he's like, I can't. I'm not calling. The system but- <laughs> is fundamentally broken. All right, speaking of broken, how about a wine, Greg? Oh, yes. Yes, yes, yes. We've got a wine. 
we have been pro-American for the last six months. I'm going to change that for just a second because we want to talk about a Chilean wine, which is a Chilean wine of very high quality. You know, people kind of forget that the climate of Chile is perfect. It's every bit as good as that of California for raising grapes. The cost of Picking grapes and making wine is probably cheaper, and they are one of the big exporters of wine now in the world. One of these is an Altair, A-L-T-A-I-R, 2006, and it is a beautiful Cabernet Sauvignon, and it is one of my favorites at this point in time, and it can be bought, it's a 90-rated wine, which is, if you read the Wine Advocate, 90 is very high-quality wine, for only 30 bucks a bottle. There's that only 30 bucks a bottle <laughs> thing again there. You're just showing your affluence off. Last month, it was a $42 bottle of wine here. Where do we get down to the swill again? Yeah. <laughs> Let's do swill next month. That's right. Okay. Now, you know, I get more pressure on this wine thing. I mean, make 30. it cheap. Make it good. I mean, you know. That's all. It's we like want the, a 95 This $5. Yeah. Come on. Give it to yeah. us. You know, this sounds like Dick Clark, you old Philadelphia guys. What are you going to give it? A 95. Why? Because I, I like the beat. I can dance to it. Yeah, I can dance to it. Right. All right. That is Risk Management Monthly, October 2009. We'll talk with you next month. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, we've got a little bit of time here, about 60 seconds, so I want to throw in some outtakes. Look, next month I'm not going to be around. It's just going to be Rick and Greg and whoever they can find at the ASEP National Meeting. I've decided not to go to ASEP this year because I'm going to focus on essentials. That's the course that we put on in Vegas, and I'm going to be putting all my efforts into that this year and probably next year because it's big, huge, large, and they don't need me at ASEP. They don't need me. So, look, you go and say hi to the boys for me, and here it is, some outtakes. These are just a few, just a small number, a tiny number of the outtakes that occur each month. Do you think these guys are professionals? Well, <laughs> they're not. We'll talk to you next month. Bye for now. Hello and welcome. Rick Bucata, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> Let us do our own names. Even when they see them, no less over the telephone. Um, lost my train of thought here. Oh, okay. Dementia is a bad disease, except you make so many new friends every day. (laughs) 